Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. the next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies in just a matter of seconds you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day long before we had a website or listeners or taste or class we called ourselves movies we like which was with the benefit of hindsight a terrible name. But before we send you through the window of time to gaze your earballs on movie podcast history, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you decide to become a regular listener of this show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work on our other series like The Film Board or The Speakeasy and Trailer Rewind, please consider a regular donation to us through our Patreon page at Patreon com slash the next reel all the contributors are invited to join us in our slack channel where we have tons of fun and they are entered to win our regular contests guest spots on this very show all sorts of good stuff so thank you everybody for downloading and listening to the next reel we appreciate your time and attention we hope you enjoy the show i want to know i want to know from you when you think about this movie what is it and just i mean i know we've been talking about it for a couple of days talking about doing it uh, for the show but I want to know, very first thing from you, what's the first thing you think of when somebody says to you, Raiders? For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. That's something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, it is their Atanis. And it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on earth by those who are good. Trust me. And those who are evil. I tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let her go. First thing I think of is um, that of all movies I've seen in my life, which is a lot of movies, that this is the movie I've seen more than any other movie. When I was a kid. My friends, um, I can't remember their last name, but their names were Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, very biblical family. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Andy. You're yeah, just hanging Andy. out, hanging out yes. with the uh, right, right. They're, they're apostles, right? It, right, exactly. It was like it was like you know 
Jesus's sidekick. That's kind you, were, of you were totally the spiritual fourth wheel. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, pretty much. The holy quadrangle. <laughs> but um, they had it on uh, on VHS. I never saw it in the movie theater, so they had it on VHS, and we would watch it like literally every single day. And it was like the first movie that I remember seeing that I was just so exhilarated by that was like not a cartoon, you know, I was enthralled by the whole story. Like it was just as a kid, it's, it's all the adventure you'd ever want, you know, all wrapped up in a perfect movie. So, you know, we must've watched it every day for that whole summer and, you know, probably long after that. What's sort of magical about this movie, and I, I don't, uh, I don't think you can say this. I don't think you can say this about the other, well, the other two that we're going to acknowledge uh, as part of the canon, and then the other one, Stepchild. Uh, I, I don't think you can say this about those other movies. They age so well, sort of psychically. You know, I, I, when I think about this movie, it means as much to me as it did. I mean, when I saw it, let's see, it came out in 1991 or 1981, right? <laughs> Yes. And so, let's see, uh, what were you in, in 81? You, what, nine, ten years old? I was uh, eight years old. Eight years old. Okay, yeah, I was I was nine. I was nine years old when this came out. I did see it in the theater with my dad, and I remember, I remember this real sort of visceral feeling that uh, I thought it was so magical that my dad could be as excited, every bit as excited on the edge of his seat about this movie as I was. Yeah. Because today, to that, up to that point, every movie that we went to together was, you know, he was really taking me to a movie. We weren't really going to a movie together. You know, we weren't both going to share the experience. It was always going to be kind of a different experience for me. Right. It uh, was either, you know, him taking you to a kid's movie yeah. or you kind of tagging along to a movie that he probably shouldn't have been taking you to. Exactly. And I, which I didn't get. And, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? And this movie, this movie grabbed me and my dad together. And that, that made, that was a, I, I think that was sort of a pivotal, uh, a, a pivotal kind of point in our, uh, in our relationship. And that's why, I mean, this movie, uh, this movie hits me square in the chest. I mean, when I think about it, I was been thinking about it since we decided to talk about it, that this, this movie has an impact on me. I wonder what you, uh, you know, as, as we were sort of researching the movie, you know, we kind of figured out where the, the inspiration for the screenplay came from. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated by uh, the fact that a lot of the inspiration came from these, well, the, the 1930s and 40s serials, Oh yeah, right. And, and uh, that, that's that's more of an obvious kind of genetic play, uh, but uh, Uncle Scrooge. Yeah, and that to me strikes me as a very strange one. I mean, the serials definitely. I mean, I think that you know George, George Lucas has talked about that many times about how he was a fan of the serials, and you know he always wanted to do something like that. In fact, I think he started working on this in the. Uh, early 70s trying to actually make a modern serial in, in like the early 70s. Um, but then I think it was um, I, I think it was Spielberg when he got involved later um, he wanted to get more of that kind of uh, just kind of the fun and it, it, you know the 
all the booby traps and all that sort of stuff. And the, yeah, he actually pulled a lot of that stuff from old Uncle Scrooge comics, which which I think is 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 the strangest place to get inspired for were, something like that. But uh, it worked. Well, were you into uh, into the uh, comic books as a kid? Actually, I still, I think, have a few Uncle Scrooge comic books, believe it or not. You have a few Uncle Scrooge comic books. I do. They were not the ones that I'm sure were inspiring Steven Spielberg, but I definitely have some probably from from the 80s. I, I, as I recall, I have one that revolves around, it, it has a very uh, Phantom of the Opera sort of theme going on. You were always so, ahead of your time. I'm going to have to pull that out now. That's and, fantastic. Uh, and reread it. I was uh, I was uh, very much into the Transformers comics. Mm. I had yeah. the, I had the comics, and I was I was very, but I never got into these uh, into the Disney stuff, and never. I mean, I didn't even I, I hadn't made the connection that Uncle Scrooge was a was uh, Donald Duck. Not really. I mean, we're right? Isn't that the thing? He's Donald Duck. No, he's Donald Duck's uncle. Donald he's, Duck's he, uncle. All right. Right. He is the Uncle Scrooge. Right. And so there were the kids. What and then the- there's Huey, Dewey, and Louie, right, the nephews. Okay. And, and they would always be getting into trouble. And I and as I recall, they were the ones who were getting into trouble. And I can't remember how Uncle Scrooge tied into it if he was, you know, getting dragged along or if... Or he, he was would- the one setting the traps, like with the punji sticks and the, and the yeah. don't step I- into the light. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And and all of the arrows that shoot out of yes, the walls. Yes, with the poison. <laughs> yes, right. Trying to get those damn nephews out of his way. So, uh, come uh, talk to me. Uh, you you're the you're the uh between us. If there is uh any sort of orbit around screenwriting genius, that orbit would be <laughs> pulling toward you. Oh, well, I yeah, thank right? you for that. So you're sure. the, you're the, uh, you're the, you're the pro here. So tell me, uh, give, pull the, pull a little bit of the pacing of the script apart, will you? Because that's one of the things that I really noticed, right? This is, and, and the reviews, early reviews, you know, really highlighted this. And I think it's an, it's an important thing to talk about this movie that the pacing of this film is perfect. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of that stemmed from, um, from one, the genre, I think doing an adventure film, I think, you know, by nature has a lot of exciting stuff in it. But I think what they did is they they found a story that that they brought a lot of really interesting characters into it. And, you know, you always hear people say, you know, it's, it's about the character. And I think that's what people complain about when they talk about modern adventure films or other, you know, big genre films is um, that they find that the characters are lacking. And this is one that you've got just a lot of really meaty characters. So, you know, you've got Indiana Jones, you've got Marion, you know, you've got... Um, I, you know, I got sidetracked looking for uh, Ronald Lacey. Can you tell me off the top of your head who Ronald Lacey is? Well, he plays Tot. <laughs> See, course. now you're looking at IMDb right now, you, tr- you fraud. Did, uh, well, would you yes, have known yes. that before? I would not have known that before. But you know what... Of all of the images that are just permanently burned in my head, the image of him melting will oh. always, always remain in my head. Yeah, and I, and I think it's because I, I maybe it's just because as a kid, you know, when you see that happen, it's just such a shocking thing to watch. Um, but also, I have this set of special effects books that I got when I was a kid, 
And they talk about the special effects that went into the making of this movie. And they showed how they made him melt. And I was so fascinated. And they have this still image in this in the book of him them melting him. And basically, he's like a wax figure. And they have hair dryers off screen that they're like blowing on it, on this wax to melt it. And, and they're doing a time lapse of the actual you know, melting process. And then when you watch it in full speed, it looks like the guy is just melting right there. And when you put all the sound effects in it, it you're convinced it really is a person melting. They, the, uh, they say the, uh, now I'm, I'm <coughs> following along with, with you here and I'm, I'm reading the background of what they were doing there. And it's exactly what you just said, but what they say here is they, they filmed it all with an undercranked camera. Right. What does that mean? What kind of what is the effect that we get from an undercranked camera? Well, it kind of is like time lapse. Um, undercranking means that you're cranking. In the old days, when you actually had to hand crank a camera, you know, back in the silent film days, there was a crank on the side of the camera, and you would turn it. And filmmakers got very um, in tune with the camera, and they knew how to turn it at just the right speed. Um, which was, it wasn't 24 frames per second back then. It was somewhere just a little off, like 20 frames per second. I can't remember what they were playing. But they got really used to turning just at that exact speed. So um, when they would play it back, it always looked normal. If you undercrank a camera, what that means is you're, over the course of a second, instead of, you know, let's just... in modern day, instead of 24 frames per second, you're now getting only, say, 18 or maybe even 12 frames per second. So when you actually play that back at 24 frames per second, everything is going to be moving much faster than it normally would. Just like when you overcrank, that's essentially creating slow motion. Okay. So that's how we get the, uh, the it's almost uh, sort of a stop motion looking thing when he's melting. Yeah, it, it, in a way, although it's instead of stop motion where, you know, they would, you know, take a frame, somebody goes in and manipulates it, take a frame, like what they what uh, right. Ray Harryhausen does with all of his puppets, you know, instead of kind of doing that old school way where it's, it's moving puppets and making them, um, making them move, this is a process where the camera is, is still clicking off pretty quickly at pretty quick reg, uh, intervals, but... Um, it's just something that's happening on screen that they're going to actually make look is happening a lot faster. Hmm. That was a that was a terrible scene. It was gruesome. That end, that end scene. There were there were a couple things going on. So Tot's head is being melted. Uh, Admiral uh, is it uh, Admiral Dietrich? Colonel his, Dietrich. Colonel Dietrich. His yep. his head uh, was a uh, was a hollow model. From which, uh, which I'm going to read as a balloon, from which air was withdrawn. So he he uh, caved oh. in on himself. Uh, that was Colonel Diedrich. And uh, uh, let's see, there was some. Other, there was another bit that I mean, the rest of it was you know obviously they use a lot of underwater uh, and a lot of a lot of smoke to get the ghostly look. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that, and we're totally bearing, or we're totally jumping to the end here, but. I, you know, that's ah, all right. All right. Everybody's seen this it. Was, uh, here's hoping. Uh, this is the thing that that struck me the the fire scene right at the very end when the canyon is consumed by fire. Mm-hmm. That was shot upside down. Interesting. The miniature uh, the firestorm that cleanses the canyon uh, was uh, at the finish was a miniature canyon filmed upside down. And I've been trying to figure out. I'm actually I'm because I, I read this after I watched the movie again. And I'm 
trying to figure out what is the effect that they get by by flipping it over uh with the fire i guess it was the uh, it's more the rolling uh i don't even remember it well, see now i'm just so lost in what i'm remembering i can't even well i it. if i'm remembering i not only would it have been upside down but maybe also it would have been um played in reverse where because isn't it where all the flames and everything kind of after they all kind of shoot through the canyon, then it all kind of gets sucked all back up into the into the yeah arc. yeah 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 you're right. And so uh, it's it's just one of those effects where um, because they because I think by having it upside down, they can have the flames like blowing up into it, and the nature the natural movement of the flame is it's going to hit and it's going to kind of move and fold along with the contours of the canyon. So by by flipping that over, it looks like this you know heavenly fire, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Is coming is basically coming down from the heavens and, and spreading through the canyon. So I guess I can see how it would work. That would be an interesting little uh, um, outtake to watch. It would be. I I wish so badly that they there was more sort of frantic document uh, documenting of fi- these films that are so important to me. You know, I mean the behind the scenes kind of ancillary footage on the re-release DVDs and Blu-rays isn't as, isn't as good as I want it. No, and you know, that's something that um, I have found. And it seems to be more with Spielberg when he releases his films on, uh, on you know, video formats, or, or I guess not video formats, but on disc formats, he doesn't seem to put a lot of extras. You know, there's there's not a lot. I know he's he's not somebody who likes doing audio commentary mm-hmm. um, but even like the behind the scenes documentaries and everything I mean they have very Hollywood produced sorts of behind the scenes documentaries but they don't seem like he doesn't seem very interested in letting people into the the real secret behind the filmmaking as it were like George Lucas is on you know on the Star Wars discs where I think there's probably you know f- at least five times more behind the scenes footage than there is actual film. I wouldn't be surprised if he's not uh, retouching the behind-the-scenes stuff, too. Yeah, yeah, probably. What a, what a Lucas. Jeez, that man. Why Why do you think... I, 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 you know, I don't know. I wonder, there are people, if, if there is a sort of a, I don't know, a, a cadre, a, a catalog of people, of, of mm-hmm. men like us, who were introduced... To romantic relationships through Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood. Well, that's a, a, a very interesting type of romantic relationship to be introduced to. Come on, man. Tell I'll me get. you did not have a total crush on Marion Ravenwood. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I did. I'm just saying their relationship was very uh, antagonistic at times. And I, I think that um, <coughs> it would have been a. Um, Probably for the best that I didn't use it as a um, a model when trying to find uh, girlfriends. You know, um, I w- would have expected to get smacked in the face with a mirror, or something. which is exactly as it should be. <laughs> that's right. right. No, probably that's what ter- I deserve. It's probably what you, it's better than you deserve. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. it's. I'm, I uh, yeah no I uh, I woke up as a man to this movie. I'll tell you that she was in that when she's on the boat. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, uh, beautiful. Uh, what's her name? Karen and Allen. Karen Allen. Yep. She's fantastic. 
I there I was, love their rela- their relationship is really appealing to me. Not just that she was incredibly hot to me in 1981, uh, but their relationship is appealing to me. I'm trying to figure out why. Well, here's another thing that I think um, made her attractive, not just as a woman but as a character, is that she wasn't just a a cardboard woman that he had to come in and save. I mm-hmm. mean, right from the start when we meet her, you know, she's drinking with the best of them mm-hmm. and, you know, can hold her own against not only like, you know, the little drinking scene, but also against all the the Nazis who come in and invade her her and her father's bar. You well, know, I mean, she's yeah. tough. No, she's uh, well, that she's she is tough. The character is tough and she is uh pivotal she is a pivotal character in the movie. Right? Yes. I think what when it becomes uh when she becomes replaceable, she becomes less interesting. Yes. Right? I, I guess I you know, I when I look at this movie and I look at the at you know, sort of the big action movie of the last couple of months, what would it be? Um well I don't know, when did when did Transformers come out? That was last summer. Was it last summer? Oh man, I'm the big I'm seeing him late. I'm seeing him late. What is it? I know. Well, I mean, you had a lot of um you had Thor, you had Captain America, you had Thor is a great example. Is a great example. Thor is a great example. Why is it a great example? Because here you have a a woman who is far more capable mm-hmm. uh than uh than the role she was given to play. Yeah, it was a very weak role. We're talking about um, Natalie Portman, Natalie and Portman. Her character in uh, in Thor. It was a very um, just kind of. I mean, you could have cast any unknown in that role, and it really wouldn't have made a difference. Ultimately, it was completely forgettable. T- totally forgettable. Totally replaceable. Totally non pivotal. Pivotal, right? I mean, yeah. she was a she was a bullet point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and you know, I I hate to say it, but I think. You know, and I know we were, you know, not going to be touching on the ugly redheaded stepchild too much, especially in this conversation. But I think that, to a large extent, that is kind of what they ended up doing with Marion in the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You're right. We should. Uh, well, we got to say it because it's out there now. I mean, she's back in that movie, and uh, yeah, talk about she replaceable. She was in yeah. that movie because she was a bullet point. Uh, she was a bullet point. It's like she was a checkbox. Well, what are we going to do with Marion? She was in the other movie. We got to. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be funny? Well, it was almost like this. I, I can see them brainstorming, like trying to figure out all the great things that they did with the series. And you know, I think a, a success in recent sequels in like I don't know, last ten, fifteen years, is they've been really working at bringing back like all of the key characters um you know in sequels in the old days um like great sequels like gremlins 2 for example uh i don't know why that one came to my head but you know they very few characters from the original continue through the series Mm -hmm. um even if it is a good movie but i don't i don't remember when the point kind of shifted and all of a sudden it was like they wanted to bring as many people along for the sequels as they could and it was like they felt like, oh, well, let's bring back Marion because she was so great back in in the first movie. But then they didn't do anything with her character. No. And you know, the thing that always sticks in my head now, unfortunately, with Marion, is her driving like a buffoon in the jeep as the jeep you know flows down the river. 
Right. And it's just like, seriously, this well, is what you're going to do with Marion? It is. It's a betrayal. It's a because betrayal. you know, it, it's dishonest. It's a dishonest portrayal of that character because you have experience with the character that is vastly different than what they are giving her in that sequel. Yeah. It's exactly what, um, it's turning uh, a great character into a buffoon. Um, and it just, it struck me as um, Jamie Lee Curtis's character was a buffoon in True Lies. You, you love know. True Lies. Oh, you God. did. You love that movie. Stop, uh, Stop talking. You know, I actually did like it when I first saw it. And the more I see it, the more I, I All just. Right, that's gonna, that's on the it. list. We're going to have to talk about oh. it. Here, here's the thing I want to, you brought, you, you made me think about it. And I know, you know, we're going to, we're going to do the other, uh, the other uh, Indiana movies. Uh, yes, too, definitely. But, uh, but you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I don't think I've ever thought about it in this context. There are four mm-hmm. uh, Indiana movies. Uh, the first one is uh, Raiders. The second one, I didn't know until today. I've seen the second one not as many times as Raiders, but a lot of times. Sure. It was a prequel. Correct. You didn't know that? Didn't know that. It's been 25 years. Wow. That's interesting. It hasn't been. Jeez. Oh, I, I did not know that. I did not know there was a prequel. The th- and it was it was uh, largely not a very good movie. Uh, but we'll talk about that. Too. Uh, the, okay, the third I one, like it. The third I, one I quite liked. Uh, uh, the fourth one was uh, was largely uh, uh, not a good movie. So for me, I'm wondering like the weight of this series. And I'm going to get to the question. Uh, the weight of this series is is largely held up on the shoulders of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Right, and definitely. Well, yeah, right? I mean, that's, that's where you think of you think of Indiana Jones. You're you're thinking of the tarantulas on Alfred Molina's back. You're thinking of the Boulder Run. Uh, you know, you're thinking of the oh my god, the wonderful uh, hat chase uh, of baskets in the mm-hmm, in the, the square, basket right? chase. The, right, that's right. just fantastic. And yeah, you're thinking of the, the monkeys. And, and the... please, are you not thinking of bad dates? I mean, that that's the the, yeah. the best. How often, when you think of Indiana Jones, are you thinking of uh, Om Nom Shivai, Om Nom Shivai, as you're reaching in the heart? That's not well, the thing that you that comes to mind. I actually think of that one quite a bit for some reason. You're a horrible person. I am yeah, a horrible, horrible person. But the, the weight of the of the and there's I still haven't even gotten my question yet. That wasn't even my question. That was anecdotal. My question mm. is the if the why didn't this series uh, become our James Bond. You know, that's a great question. Um, I think the easy answer is that James Bond had all of the Ian Fleming novels to use as a basis. So they actually had a huge supply of stories. I mean, not a huge supply, but they definitely had a good supply of stories to kind of go with. So they were able to... um, kind of pull from all those Ian Fleming novels and kind of just tell all those stories. This one, they didn't have that. Um, and so they had to come up with original stories every time. And I think that they could have if they had planned that. But I think, um, you know, filmmaking is one of those things where you start getting involved in another project and next thing you know, it's it's 10 years later and, you know, Nothing has been done with it. And I think that's why there was such a gap between the second and the third movies. And then, you know, obviously an even bigger gap between the third and the fourth movies. And it, and the other thing about it is because there wasn't that basis before 
the uh, film started getting made, like because there wasn't a, a whole series of, of books or, you know, um, George Lucas's, you know, The Adventures of Indiana Smith, you know, serial stories as he originally titled the movie. Mm. Um, by the time that this movie got made, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Harrison Ford all had become such big names that um, you couldn't just send off, you know, Steven Spielberg or Lawrence Kasdan or George Lucas to write this story. All of a sudden, it became this, this you know, elephant that they all had to be involved in. And that was the big holdup in getting the fourth movie made is because um, Harrison said he would not sign off on a script unless, or he wouldn't do another one unless he felt that the script was absolutely perfect. And same thing with George and Steven. So all of a sudden, instead of just one person a la Ian Fleming, writing all the novels that he wanted to. You had these three big Hollywood players, all with big egos, who wanted to get everything exactly the way they wanted. Hmm. And it's a shame, because I think this could have been an amazing series to, uh, to do like the James Bond films. I mean, how fun would that have been to kind of be following these stories of, of uh, Indiana Jones? You know what's sad, uh, Belloc. Why is he that? Why is that sad? Because you know, uh, I think in in the long list of firsts that this movie introduced me to, mm-hmm. uh, he his character was the first complex villain, right? I mean, you know that there, you know that there was this sort of Nazi uh, thing, and you know that that Tot was was really. I, I I should be fair. Tot was the monster, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, Belloc was the nemesis. Yeah. Right. And he was complex, and and he was suave. Fascinating, fascinating character. Yeah. I don't. I. It's it's hard to find uh, characters like that. You watch. I mean, all the way to the very end. Through the the whole thing is a, it's like this glorious sort of chase scene, right? And they uh, all the way through the the sort of waves of the movie, and they meet after you know uh, Indiana thinks that that Marion is dead, and mm-hmm. uh, they meet in the bar, and everybody has guns. You know, I had mm-hmm. such a great. Everybody stands up, and that's such a great scene. He goes outside, and he meets Solly's rescued by all the kids, and. And yet, even even in that restaurant scene, you can tell that Belloc, uh, uh, Belloc really, if Indiana would turn around and say, you know what, dude, let's just go find this ark together. Let's mm-hmm. just run off. We can do this. Everybody else is just, they're idiots. Mm-hmm. Why are we playing in the sand with these idiots? You know, and, and what uh, there's actually a line in that scene that I think is a, uh, a very key line that happens quite a bit between... Um, protagonists and antagonists in a film it's the we're the same you and i yeah line. yeah 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 uh you know it and it happened that line comes up all the time and it's it's a great um element to have in a in a script because you're really looking at your protagonist and antagonist as essentially almost like two characters who who are on the same path but they but one goes left and the other goes right mm-hmm. and so they're almost like these mirror reflections and, and it's it's always interesting to have that as as your protagonist and antagonist it gives a lot to a story you know because you can see what indiana jones could become 
if he chose to take that other path. And when you look at the at not just the the sort of cinematic arc of this movie, when you look at the the overall arc of the series, rather than the covenant, I knew I you know. <laughs> Yes, There's a setup, and you. T- I I, that's good. There's a, it's a banter. That was like that was practically a bit. <laughs> uh, almost planned. <laughs> the uh, that uh, almost feels like that's uh, that's missing the nemesis, right? Like it feels like it's it's uh, much more of a whirlwind uh, through the rest of the uh, films, and you miss the Belloc kind of suave uh, antagonist role. It's not as cl- it's not as uh, complex and interesting. It's just sort of good versus evil, white spy versus spy. Yeah, right. Yeah. You don't get that as much, and I think it's a it's a fault with a lot of modern screenwriters um, and filmmakers because they're responsible for getting it out there. Is that they let it slide? They don't spend the time to come up with another Belloc character. Yeah. Yeah, that was a uh, an incredibly strong cast. Yeah, you know, I'm just looking at it, and the one that just kind of, you know, Alfred Molina. Made, well, Alfred Molina, um, always just fantastic to see him in the beginning of the film. I just oh. have always loved that. He's on my uh, list of uh, best friends who have never met me. I have I have a good list like that. Too. Yeah, like I'm sure we'd be close. Exactly, exactly. But the one that strikes me, which I never even realized, is is the man who played Katanga, the uh, boat captain, right? Uh, George Harris, and and I, I've I've recognized him, but I I didn't ever realize where. But he was in the Harry Potter movies. Well, wait, 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 wait! Don't say it. Don't tell me. Really? Yeah. That blows me away. He was Kingsley Shacklebot. Shacklebolt. Shacklebolt. Yeah. Yep. Shacklebot. Shacklebot. That's the Transformers version Man. of him. Man. <laughs> it's the Shacklebot. Why that, did you Transformers? <laughs> That's amazing. Oh man. I you know it's it strikes me as funny and I I don't think of this all the time but when I see somebody that I saw in a movie as a kid um who like I may not have seen since I saw that movie um it just instantly makes me like them all the more. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, it's like, oh my God, he was in, he was in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And yet Ronald Lacey, Major Arnold Todd, a- 147 <laughs> movies that dude's done. I wouldn't be able to tell you a single one of them. No. Amazing. No. John Rice Davies uh, uh, was uh, fantastic as uh, Sala in the whole. Uh, yes, he was great. Movie. We all know him now as Gimli. I think that's probably what more people know him as. But I was uh, going to say Sliders. I've never seen Sliders. Yeah. Well, I've I've eaten Sliders. Your nerd nerd cred is <laughs> it does not hold a candle, my friend. Well, here's something nerdy. <laughs> all right. Do you know that Frank Marshall actually is in the movie? Frank Marshall's in the movie. He was a, now he was brought on as a producer, right? Right. Uh, I don't know if he was brought on as a producer on. Uh, he was. It was a producer on this film, wasn't right. he? So uh, he was. Uh, you're saying he was in the movie. He was a he producer. Was, on the oh, film. please! I know who he was. Are you? Ready I know. For this? Are you ready for yeah. this? I love it. Reggie. He That's was just a pilot. My, my pet snake, Reggie. Yep. That's him. Isn't that crazy? Man. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he. So what was the pilot's name? Was it Jacques? It's Jacques. Jacques. Right? It was. It yeah. was. I, I hate, hate snakes, snakes Jacques. Jacques. I hate him. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Frank That's Marshall. Brilliant. This is, uh, this movie just sort of defined iconic. It defined. You know what else it defined? It defined sunsets. For me. Because of because of that scene. There's that scene at the mm-hmm. when they're digging. When yep. they're digging on the hill, and it's that it's that perfectly two dimensional sunset diorama scene. Right, visually, with silhouettes. Visually, it's when up. he's putting the hat on and he's got his head kind of cocked sideways. It it really uh, sort of defined what a man's supposed to look like. Mm. Yes, yes, and and that is what I look like. It's actually. like you are also uh, iconic. Can we talk to me about uh, special effects uh, in this movie. I, I'm fascinated. Industrial Light and Magic did the effects, and when you think of ILM, you you certainly don't. Uh, I I would not have. I mean, not knowing better, just judging by the work, mm-hmm. most of the effects in this movie seem very very practical. They were, and I think. Um, well, this was back in the day before. Industrial Light yeah, Magic, obviously. ILM, was doing anything. There CG. was no CG. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. It there was, was all, all before and the day. Um, and let's just cross our fingers that when this finally does make it to Blu-ray that um, we're not looking at CG right. um, changes to it. But yeah, they were, um, they were really big um, ever since pretty much, I think, Star Wars. They really started doing a lot of effects and getting out there. Um, and practical effects is what it was all about. The... Um, one thing that another thing from my fantastic special effects book from you know the 80s was how they did all those clouds when the arc um when they opened the arc and it just you have those amazing clouds in the sky over this little island in order to create clouds back then they would actually use liquids they would use different liquids they would have a tank of water and then they would have I'm not sure what type of, of liquids they were, like mercury or something, and they would pour it into the water and they would film it and it would not mix with the water. It would keep itself separate, and but it would create this like cloudy look and they would film that and then put it onto the actual film as a plate and you'd get those amazing cloud formations in the sky. They did a lot of that, I believe, in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind as well. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, that's uh, a a lot of uh, I you know I'm just surprised because I watched through this movie and you know what uh, what doesn't stick out at me is um, clumsiness, right? There was no mm-hmm. part in there where I thought that is an obvious miniature, right? Right? I think I I, I can think I of one thing in the movie that somebody actually had to show me uh, many years after I saw it that I didn't notice on my own. But I can think of one thing that sticks out at me as kind of a, an effects flub, and it's uh, it's the snake uh, that strikes at Indy. Oh, you can see the glass reflection. You can reflection. see the glass. Right. Yeah, right, right. But I, I, didn't, I couldn't tell that. I, I had to be told it. I yeah, hate when, the people who do that to me. Uh, well, when you're involved in the story, you don't want to. Right. Um, you're not pulling yourself out thinking of those things. And and when a story is this good, it is kind of hard to pull yourself out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, there's not. In fact, even the giant boulder that's rolling um, toward Indy in the very beginning was like 200-some pounds of paper mache. It was this giant ball that they actually made. It was a big phys- physical ball mm-hmm. that they made. 
And when when Harrison Ford trips, that's him like really scrambling to get up because he doesn't want to be rolled over by this actual giant ball. You know, he's he's trying to outrun this very physical object, and you yeah. don't get that anymore. No, it's, you don't get that with the. Uh, you wouldn't have gotten that with the uh, the green screen boulder. No, exactly. It was. It, it, it's really. I mean, that's. I I think that's one of the standout uh, bits about this movie is just how. Uh, how expert the story lets you get away from any of the, lets you escape from any of the filmmaking issues, which there were a few. I mean, I, I, it's, what is it about these guys? So Lawrence Kasdan, the way the story goes, as I understand it, is George Lucas had this idea Mm -hmm. for this movie, Indiana, Indiana Smith, right? Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Smith and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Is that what the whole, the original one was? I think it was just called The Adventures the of Adventures Indiana Smith. The Adventures of Indiana Smith. That's what it yeah. was. I, it's just, I've, I, you know, hindsight is what it is, but that just sounds <laughs> so stupid. It really it does. really stupid. So he well, had this it's, idea. It's Lucas. He's such a... <laughs> um, and, and so he has this idea, and he goes, uh, and he sits down with his buddy, um, uh, Philip Kaufman. He was working on it. The way I understand it, he was working on it simultaneously with uh, uh, Empire. Strikes Back, mm. right? And no, uh, not Empire Strikes Back. Um, the original Star Wars. Well, because he was yeah, you're right, and he shelved it to do Star Wars. Right, right, exactly. And then he was vacationing with uh, Steven Spielberg, and it was actually Steven Spielberg who said, uh, "Yeah, you know, S- uh, Smith is stupid. You got to mm-hmm. go with something else." And also wanted to make Indiana Jones uh, a drunk. An oh, alcoholic. that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was. It apparently was a very dark vision of Indiana Jones, which would have been a disaster. I would. So well, it just would have been a different movie. It's not the same movie. Uh, but it was. It was then uh, Lawrence Kasdan and Philip Kaufman. Now Lawrence Kasdan, we know from uh, uh, Empire, right? Empire Strikes Back. The, uh, didn't he do the Big Chill? Yeah, the Big Chill. And Philip Kaufman. Uh, Crime. We just we just said it. Um, well, he 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 left this project because uh, Clint Eastwood asked him to exactly. come do the Josie outlaw Wales. Josie Wales, right, right? Right. But it was he up, up until then he was he was working on it with George. What is the dif- What is the difference uh, between when you get a story credit versus a screenplay credit? Can you? Uh... Well, a story credit is is generally like you you helped kind of create the concept. You know, you kind of helped lay out what was going to be happening without necessarily sitting down and and banging out the actual screenplay. Now, my understanding is that, you know, there are, you know, times where you may have worked on the screenplay, but um, they the WGA, Writers Guild of America, acknowledges that you did have some say in what happened, but not enough to actually be considered one of the actual... Um, screenwriters, so they would uh, perhaps just give you a story credit. If you had, if there were elements in the story that are clearly yours, um, then you may just get a story credit, and that's what happened with Mr. Kaufman and George Lucas. Right, because the two of them together pretty much came up with the story. Right, and it was Lawrence Kasdan who sat down and wrote the actual screenplay. Right, based on all the ideas that they had and everything. Right. So, and but, and not to say that he didn't contribute his own when he worked on the screenplay too. In fact, 
um, it's entirely possible that he was involved in the story too. He just didn't end up um, getting the story credit because he got the sole screenwriting credit. Yeah, I was just going to say, which do you which do you shoot for? You want the screenplay, right? Yeah, screenwriting credit. I think is is the one that you'd really mm. want. I d- I don't think there's. I mean, I don't think there's a reason he would have said. I only want screenwriting credit. Um, I think he may have also fought to get a story credit, but he didn't because he got sole screenwriting credit. You know, there's all these negotiations and backroom hagglings with any of these types of credits. And I, there is a lot of, um, you know, hemming and hawing with the WGA and everyone else about who's going to get what credit. Um, if, if they're not really fighting about it, the people just kind of figure it out on their own. If it's um, if it's something that people are really arguing, then the WGA may step in. But I don't think that was the case with All this right. one. So you get these guys now. These guys were they just feel them. It feels to me like these guys are part of a club, right? Doesn't it a little bit? It, like it at does. This time it sh- they were like there was about a decade and a half where these guys were making all the movies. They were making yeah. the movies that stick with us. And I, you know, what have the where, what have they done? What have they done for me lately? Well, um, Spielberg's still active. Yeah, no, he's good, but you know yeah. he. He was but executive. yeah, Kasdan, you know, I think the last one I remember of his was, uh, wasn't it something with, uh, was it Jason Lee where he's like a counselor coming to a, or he's, he's a fake psychiatrist or something. That's Lawrence, my, that was Lawrence Kasdan. Wasn't it? <laughs> I, I feel like that was his last movie. <laughs> Let me fake look. Fake psychiatrist. Yeah. Well, uh, he, cause he did. Mumford. Uh, that that was not his last one. That was actually 1999. Oh my goodness! Uh, but he hasn't done much since. He actually was the writer, director, and producer of Dreamcatcher. Yeah, the poor guy. I don't know why. Dreamcatcher. Anyone... That was the uh, Stephen King, right? That was the Stephen King one with that the he... the toilet scene. Oh my god! Yeah, that's pretty gruesome. That was but that's it. the one Stephen King wrote when he was all hopped up on his meds. Yeah. from after getting hit by that lady, spending all his time uh, in the John, imagining his. <laughs> So he is, did, uh, but yeah, he did, you know, he, he has a string of uh, also awesome movies. I liked Wyatt Earp a lot. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Oh, um, please. One day I will. It's right, just, it's on it, the just list. it feels tedious, but the, I'm sure. The Bodyguard was tedious, but very popular. Apparently the ladies liked it. You know, it. I enjoyed The Bodyguard. Silverado, come on, Silverado. Silverado had its moments. The but big you see what I'm saying? Enjoyed, we go, yes. The further back in time we go the better that guy gets. Exactly. Well, look at the beginning. The first thing he has writing credits for is The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, how does that get to be your first writing credit? You know? please. And then Raiders Body Heat, which I think is probably one of my favorite films of the 80s. That was Kathleen uh, Turner, right? Kathleen Turner and William Hurt, yeah. She was so... There was another... Wow, I shouldn't have seen that movie when I did. (laughs) Uh, Body Heat... uh, Continental Divide uh, was fantastic. Uh, and and then Star Wars: Return of the Jedi and Big yep. Chill Silverado. So there you go. That and guy's accidental tourist. That guy's tourist. first was that the, another William Hurt, uh, right? Yep. Yeah, that was a snoozer. I mean, look at it. And then no, it, but it was a really good story. And then he ended that ten year reign with "I Love You to Death," which, as I recall, I, I really hated. Uh, <laughs> but you know, but he had he had ten years there. Yeah. Um, where he was, you know, Cranking for the most part, great, rock solid. Yeah, great. Uh, adult contemporary, <laughs> adult <laughs> contemporary adventure movies, right? I mean, great adventure film. Uh, so there's uh, Lawrence Kasdan, uh, Philip Kaufman. He's one of those uh, guys who's done 
a lot of uh, like the big thing that I think he's known for is um, the right stuff. The right stuff. That's what. That's, but look. At, okay. Now, seriously, that that guy's got. Um, he's got some more interesting things going on for him. Well, oh, he did. Since he did an invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, which right? I think would be another fun series to go through oh, all the body snatchers stories. Terrific. And and that one I think I, I really enjoy. That's the one with Donald Sutherland. That was the that was certainly the best one. I really like that one. But he also, you know, it's interesting. He's got credit for let's see, uh I don't I don't know anything about it. So nineteen sixty four is his first uh story credit, right? His first uh, writing credit. Goldstein. I don't I've never heard of Goldstein. Nor uh, have I. Or Fearless Frank. Uh, or frankly, uh, the great Northfield, Minnesota raid, uh, <laughs> all, all, all big, hits, but then thing. look at, he gets pulled off. Uh, the next film he does, uh, as a writer is outlaw Josie Wales, uh, the wanderers, Raiders of the lost Ark, the right stuff, the unbearable lightness of being La- Indiana Jones and the last crusade, Raiders of the lost Ark, the adaptation. I don't know what that is. Henry and June, terrific film. Mm-hmm. Uh, no idea what Indiana Jed is. That makes me, I, I think that may be where it sort of falls. But Rising Sun, really? Terrific well, movie. Yeah. I, I didn't see that one. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Uh, no, that's a, well, that's a shame. But then what is this? Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and it goes down here. But he took a 20 yeah. year break where I guess he was directing and, uh, when he, and then he did, like, he did Quills. Yeah. Um, Twisted. You know, I think Quills is the last thing of his that I've seen, but I mean, he really hasn't done a lot. But since look, I mean, the the Wanderers, the right stuff, unbearable lightness of being, and Henry and June. He had a good stretch. Oh, he really did. He really yeah. did of just some terrific, terrific films. Yeah, uh, made some good choices. Okay, but but now, but he's got got a, a whole lot of nothing. Uh, uh, he's working, but I, I don't see a lot of uh, really very interesting. Yeah, stuff, not much. and then uh, Lucas, who spent the last twenty years, uh, you know, tinkering, robbing the bank, and just going back to the bank again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. So I, you sort of wonder where this uh, this club. Uh, well, and Spielberg, don't forget him. I mean, he's yeah. I, you know, I know. I, mean, I sort of leave him out of the list because seriously, I I mean, catch me if you can. AI Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan. I, please. Yeah, I don't. I mean, he definitely has some stinkers that he's done, but. For the most part, I think he's um, rightfully placed at the top of of cinema today. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think he's just a a stellar filmmaker. He knows how to tell a story. He knows how to make a film. And um, yeah, I think. Well, he, here's the interesting thing about that. He deserved to be in, um, walking uh, in the Olympics, <laughs> doing his little whatever it was that he was doing. The thing about that uh, about that Spielberg is. Uh, there, there just there, there really isn't anything that he's done that I've seen as, with him as a director that I just haven't liked, right? That I haven't really enjoyed. I can, uh, I'm trying to think of something that I really didn't like. I mean, he's directed what some fifty movies. Yep, yep. And uh, I, I can't think of one that I have seen of his that I haven't enjoyed. I, War of the Worlds. I liked War of the Worlds. I did too. Um, it had its problems, but I still liked it. You know, I think the ones that I would say I didn't like, except Crystal Skull, of course. Indiana, uh, you're right. Yeah. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think was just terrible. Um, the only other one that I I think I liked at the time and I have grown to not like now is Hook. I I enjoyed it a lot when I was when it came out when I was younger, and I think I don't know. It's just one of those films that just. 
I don't think has aged well. Um, and then, you know, I will jump all the way back to 1941 and I will be honest, I am definitely not one of the people who is in the camp on that one. I know there's like this little camp of people who think it's one of the funniest movies ever, but I've never been in that camp. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I've never seen that. Um, don't watch it. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, it was him and Robert Zemeckis, uh, you know, again, here's that, here's that other part of that club. Exactly. It's it's this movie that they thought would just be a, is hysterical and they all think it is still. And, you know, they kind of acknowledge that most people don't, you know, we all have those. I, I've made some short films that I think are really funny that a lot of people don't. But, you know, I, I think that kind of falls into that camp for them. I think you. I think it's funny. I think everything you do is funny. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I, I think, though, and this was my long-winded uh, point, I think as an executive producer, I start to question. But I start to question because the movies, it's like he's choosing projects to produce that uh, suddenly don't appeal to me anymore. Although it's, to be I fair, I mean, True money. Grit, yeah, <laughs> True Grit, Lovely Bones. Uh, you know, I, I have not seen Super Eight, but boy, that movie seems like right up my alley. The thing about Spielberg being um, a producer is, if you can get him attached to your film, you know you can get it made. Yeah. So that's I think the benefit to him. And actually, I have an interesting little. Um, uh, factoid here, if I can find it, about um, how much money people make and all of that. And he's one of those people who makes um, a ridiculous amount of money basically working like as a consultant now. I mean, that's, I think, how he gets all of the the credits that he gets as an executive producer as or as producer because he come kind of comes on board and gives people, oh, well, this is what you can do to fix it and make it better. And by the way, I get an executive producer credit on that and pay me $80,000 or something like that. That's, that's why you get his name attached to projects like Real Steel. Which, hey, don't knock Real Steel. That was funny, too. You just did another one. Don't knock, real, <laughs> don't knock you out, Real Steel. Oh. Knock it out. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Is it, is it good? Do we like it? It's Rock'em it. Sock'em Robots. But it was it was so good. It's it's more than rock and sock and yo boss. There, there there's an actual like uh, a story of the heart there with father and son. And a story I just, of the heart. Listen to you. I Suck. just was sucked right into that Sucker. one. Okay, here it is. Right. So this was 2009. Uh, this little document I have. Film industry by the numbers. Uh, in 2009, Steven Spielberg was the second top earner in Hollywood. Uh, right behind Michael Bay, who directed Transformers 2, who, and Michael Bay made $125 million in 2009. Steven Spielberg made $85 million, um, and that money came off of um, his part of the Universal Theme Park royalties and consulting. Wow. $85 million. $85 million. Theme Park royalties and consulting. That's that, that, that may be your future. You may be. I would your, love that your, to be my future. <laughs> if I can make eighty-five million dollars a year just doing that, I'd love it. <laughs> wow. You know, and that's actually something. Um, I I don't think that he necessarily goes into getting involved in films for this particular reason, but but it is smart getting involved in movies that have potential for an afterlife outside of just you know the uh, five dollar bin in the in your local Walmart, getting involved in a movie that has potential to become rides and, and actually be a part of a theme park and all that. I mean, that's huge. That's big. Yeah, that's big. 
Uh, you know, I, I feel like we've been uh, we wandered a, a, a bit off course, but I, I have one we other did. one other character that I sort of feel like we need to we need to talk about talk about the unsung hero of this movie is uh, that, that old Denholm Elliott. Ah, uh, yes. He's a fascinating. You don't see much of him in this movie, and yet for some reason he totally sticks out to me as as uh, you know my granddad. You know the. I mean, we're talking about um, uh, Brody, Marcus Brody, who was a fantastic character who, you know, was is kind of the connection for Indiana Jones between or to his father. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It's and that was that was the purpose of his character in the first movie. He was a device in the first movie. Right. Right. I think that's important distinction because he changed from the first movie to the. Third. Uh, third movie, right. Yeah. Well, and and I think that they did to his character, um, going from the first to the third movie, what they did to um, the character of Marion going to the fourth movie. Right. I think they they turned him into just like kind of a buffoon. And as much as I enjoy the third movie, a lot of those moments that just kind of turn, you know, into just silliness just always you know, frustrate me when right. we see Marcus Brody unable to ride his horse and he's riding, riding off, practically falling off and just all that sort of stuff. I mean, it, yeah, that I know, that I know good. that no. And I, I, I'm sure that in their minds trying to stick with the idea of the serials and not be so serious and all that is uh, maybe what they were going for. But I, I think that it was not fair to the character of, of Brody to kind of make him that. Here's uh, so the the um, on your point of humor, uh, the rumor of uh, the uh, the the infamous gun versus whip. Mm. Do you, is is that is that uh, true that that was improvised? Is that your uh, that's, understanding? That's what I hear. What I what I way I understand it is they had been working and practicing on a. He was supposed to do a. a uh, so the 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 sh- sh- I don't know who it is the Shah uh, swordsman comes out with his mm-hmm. with his scimitar and right. he does this fancy fancy whipping around the sword around his head and he's he does this intimidating dance of evil right. uh, with his <laughs> scimitar and uh, what was supposed to happen and what was scripted was that Indiana Jones was supposed to do a an intimidating dance of whip whippiness. And, yeah, uh, right, right. And and it had been a long day of shooting and and he was tired and eventually at take 98 he pulled out his gun and shot the guy. Yeah. And that's that's the take they took. Uh improvised. Apparently there's a lot in the movie that was improvised, but that's the one that really stuck. Um Well, and it's a great one and you know, they were probably kicking themselves um but they didn't it think of it, going, right? Wow, yeah, why didn't we do that to begin yeah. with? I mean, it's just one of those genius moments, and it allowed for a great motif to come back in uh, the second movie. Yeah, because the exact same thing happens, except this time, you know, he doesn't have his gun, and so he has to face this guy. And, and so it was a nice little a- a way to tie that back. Oh man, I'm a tool. I hadn't made that connection either. Oh my goodness, you're kidding! What am I even doing on this show? <laughs> I bet you did make that connection. I bet you just forgot you made that connection. I do. I skipped. I skipped the second movie and the fourths in my head in canon. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, all these people that we're talking about, all these you know wonderful actors. I think one um, character that we have not talked about at all um, is the music and yeah, the genius boy, talk about Williams. being in. Uh, he was another guy that was in that club, and and uh, yeah, he he got out of it. He got out of it okay. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, I think probably become one of the most prolific and um, um, powerful um, symphonic score conductors, uh, composers and conductors out there. Do you, do, you, do, you like, do you like his stuff? I love his stuff. When it comes to um, symphonic film score, I think he's one of the tops. I mean, you know, you've got... Um, He's kind of, uh, you know, the the more modern version of like the um, the um, the Bernstein, like the Elmer Bernstein, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, and then Jerry Goldsmith's kind of in that club. You know, you yeah, have a yeah, lot of these totally. composers that that were doing some great stuff with music, really giving you a uh, uh, an amazing emotional connection to the film. It was sad though. I think they I, he lost on this one to. Uh Vangelis. Well, um, gosh, you're right. He did. Um, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I because you know that's uh, you know that doesn't stick with me. Vangelis, the uh, chariots of fire theme. I I get that. I can get the first couple of bars in my head, but I but beyond that, I, I lose it. And uh, and the the Raiders March is classic. You know, the thing about the score for Indiana Jones or for Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think, is that um, I think the Raiders March is is probably the most well-known um, piece from it. But I think that a lot of the other music in the film actually is, in, in my mind, it actually um, is better than the Raiders March. Like the theme for the, uh, arc and the, the music when he's in the, uh, the chamber, the snake, the, the, not the chamber, but is it the, um, uh, where the map room, the map room. Yeah. And, and the, the moment where the light comes through and illuminates the, the, um, yep. where the yep. arc is buried, you know, just the music build in that scene is just so powerful and it's just phenomenal. Um, I, I think that that was the genius of, of uh, and still is the genius of John Williams, is he's able to create all these amazing themes and still tie them all together and connect them and make this amazingly cohesive package. Well, and when you look at the movie, the sort of musical arc of the movie, uh, you know, it goes from this this sort of the proud... Uh, uh, the proud Raiders March, mm-hmm. the the mysterious and sort of haunting um, uh, arc theme, mm-hmm. and and really whimsical uh, basket chase. Um, yeah, so, yeah, which is just which that that does sort of harken to the fifties uh, to the serials. Uh, you know, it's that it, it just moves along. So it's very peppy. It is. Uh, it is. And and then you know I don't know. We should do a whole. I mean I guess we could really get into a whole thing on John Williams. But then you get into. I mean come come on. I, so much of it is. It sounds a lot like each other. You know. You compare the themes. Uh, the the non uh, iconic themes from Raiders at, to the supplemental music from Star Wars, and you got the same music. They're practically interchangeable. Practically interchangeable. interchangeable. I don't think so. You're, uh, the only reason I'm going to do it, I'm going to recut Star Wars with Raiders, and I'm going to just gonna see if you even notice. I bet you don't. <laughs> I'll bet you don't. Dimes to donuts, you don't. The uh, the thing about um, the those moments in the film that you're forgetting is that they use elements of the themes in them, and and that's why you would never be able to successfully pull that off. 
So gonna, even when you have that. those little moments like the, the uh, I don't know, the truck chase where he's hanging off the front or whatever, you know, there's still going to be enough of the, either whether it's the bits from the Raiders March coming up or... Um, da, 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 da. You're not going to tell. It's got that is as good as uh, it. Better Raiders in Superman. And now you're jumping into Superman. That's yeah. right. Yeah. No, I'll always be able to tell. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say that that composers do often steal from themselves. You know, they can be notorious for doing that. Um, I yeah. think James Horner is probably guilty of that more than any other composer that I know of. Um, I think John Williams actually does a good job, for the most part, of of keeping well, his. Bits the problem separate. is James Horner actually steals so much from John Williams, and uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean the thing the the, the score to Glory was uh, was beautiful and so Williams. It wasn't. It was so Williams. Please. Oh, it wasn't. It was. It was a genius. God. James Horner score. If we, if we give, live, give him creds, he deserves. If we lived closer, I would set up. Uh, I would set up a sound system in your front yard, and I would just blast <laughs> it in the middle of the night. I would blast all of it just on rotation. That'd be awesome. I know. I, I, I well, this is uh, awesome. So, why? Give me some final thoughts. Why does this movie uh, for you hold up so well? Uh, it's it's just a flawless, uh, timeless film. This is a film you can watch um, in 1981. It's a film you can watch in 2011. And it doesn't feel dated in any way. You know, I think the effects were done so well. The story is told so well. It's, it's a tight story. It's full of action. It's full of emotion. You can connect to the characters, uh, whatever your age range. You know, it, it's something for everybody. I mean, it truly is. Um, not just age but of time and i think that is what makes a classic film and um, whenever you first see this film i guarantee that it will be something that will that will end up sticking with you forever and you know just a, a random side note yeah um if a movie is uh is amazing enough to make it into the great movie ride at walt disney world then you, you know, know that you know it's it. arrived <laughs> that's right <laughs> Oh, that's good. It's uh, it is a fantastic film. It borrows from all the right places, and it creates an incredibly well paced uh, action adventure that that just taps into the very core of of who who you are as a child. Yeah, it does. Even even as an as an adult, this is this is that movie. Uh, so next uh, next time uh, we are going to talk about uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Excellent. Is it? I still love that movie. I know I'm one of the few, but uh, I'm very excited to talk about that one. I'm gonna find. I'm gonna find the stones. I want those. I, I do remember. I remember the chase for the stones, finding the stones. I remember all the kids, and you know, maybe it was. I don't know. I I don't know if Short Round didn't age well with me. Uh, I don't you know. know what it was, but they, yeah, they took it. They definitely took it into the silly realm. Um, with that one a you little think, more you, than they did with think, Raiders. You think? That's hey. what, that's where you're going to lay it up? They took it into the silly home? <laughs> that thing was a freaking pool of plastic balls. It was hey, so silly. You know... The rolling people, shield? Oh, my goodness. People who complain about, um, about that movie... I'm ready do, for your global they, generalization about me. Go ahead. No, no, no. You people just said who, it. Yes, I did. They People are who say idiots. that about the second movie, but are unwilling to say that about the third movie, are are 
are full of it because the third guy. one is equally full no. of just cheese. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I'm mm-hmm. f- I guess I guess I'm full of it, Andy. You're, you're full of it. <laughs> All right. I guess we'll just talk about hey, how full of it you are next time. Well, we'll see. We'll yes. see. I'm, maybe you should actually watch the, this movie again with a critical eye. Maybe you should watch it with the uh, the the silly glasses off that you uh, that you take off when you're watching the third one. You have silly glasses. I do, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I gotta I gotta go. I gotta go to I gotta go to bed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.